Welcome to Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. We are Scott and Maureen Proctor, and we're so happy to be with you again this week and to study with you these most important truths from the New Testament. We're so blessed to have the scriptures and even more blessed to be able to study them every day. We're grateful to Paul Cardall, who provides that music that opens and closes this podcast. This week's lesson is taken from parts of Matthew chapters 16 and 17, Mark chapters 8 and 9, and Luke chapter 9. The lesson is entitled, Thou Art the Christ. Before we get started, will you do us a favor during this coming week? Will you share this podcast with three other friends and or family members? We would love to get this out as far and wide as possible. And with your personal help, we can do that. It's easy to tell people where to come. Just go to ldsmag.com forward slash podcast. There you will find this and the other 13 episodes that we have published. Can you do this for us? Again, just share this podcast this week with three other people. Thank you. Let's begin our discussion this week with a paragraph from the lesson and then a comment. Here's the paragraph. Isn't it strange that the Pharisees and Sadducees would demand that Jesus show them, quote, a sign from heaven? Weren't his many well-known miracles enough? What about his powerful teachings or the multiple ways he had fulfilled ancient prophecies? Their demand was prompted not by a lack of signs, but by an unwillingness to discern the signs and accept them. It struck us as we were reading that paragraph that Jesus himself was the sign, Remember what the prophet Isaiah had said in chapter 7, quote, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's Isaiah seven fourteen. Remember what Emmanuel means in the Hebrew? God with us. Jesus himself was the sign from the Father, as John recorded, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus was the epitome of signs, the great sign from the heavens that God does not forget his children. He sent his only begotten Son to let his children know that he loves them, and that chosen Son would be the sign of his love. Let us lay down one more truth as we begin this lesson, and that is from the teachings of John the Beloved and Paul the Apostle. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, and no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 3. In other words, to know that Jesus Christ is the Holy One of Israel, the only begotten of the Father, the Messiah, we can only know that, absolutely know that truth by the revelation given us by the Holy Ghost. That reminds us of the promise that Jesus gave to his disciples as he was getting ready to leave them. He said in John chapter 15, verse 26, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. If you already have that witness, which most of you do have, bear it to your family. This will immediately invite the Spirit into your home. If you have a spouse or a family member who is not of our faith or is struggling, bear your testimony of the Savior to them with love. This can do nothing but invite the sweetness of the Spirit into your home and into their hearts. They will feel the love of the Savior and your love, and you can't help but benefit. 
the testimony that you have will truly bless all members of your household. This testimony plays into our lesson this week. Now we're going to take you to a scene in Caesarea Philippi so you'll better understand an important scripture. Jesus is there with his apostles, and they have been preaching the gospel. They are gathered here at this specific location, and he wants to get a report from each of them. We will talk about what he asked them in a minute, but you can't fully understand the impact of these verses unless you understand the geographic setting. Let's talk about that setting. Israel is a very dry country, especially in the south and in the east. But here in the north, at Caesarea Philippi, it is verdant and green. This ancient city sits right at the base of Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in the area, at 9,232 feet. That's the top of Mount Hermon. This mountain usually has snow year-round, and that snow melts into the mountain and into deep subterranean caverns. The water then comes out in three major springs here in the north, Dan, named after the tribe of Dan, Chatzbani, or Sneer, and Banias. These three springs flow in the Hula Valley and become one river, the Yardine, or you would recognize it as the Jordan River. This means coming down from Dan, Jordan. Here at Caesarea Philippi is the beautiful Banias Springs, a great waterfall that flows out and forms a crystal clear river. Water in a desert is life. We always take our tours to see this Banya Springs because they are so impressive and remind one of living waters. The original name of this river would have been Panyas, but the Arabs don't use the P sound, so it's Banyas. That was named after the Greek god Pan. So at this site, near where Jesus would have been getting the report from the apostles, was the city of Caesarea Philippi. And in that city, right up against a hundred foot solid rock cliff face and a larger cave or cavern was a pagan temple built to this idol god Pan. Earlier in its history this city would have been a center of worship for the god Baal. In the time of Jesus there were detestable rituals and sexual orgies and rites going on at this temple, things that would have been so abhorrent to Jesus and his disciples. The locals considered the great cavern where water flowed out voluminously as one of the gates of Hades or the gates of hell. They believed that their idol gods would retreat into the cavern and into the underworld here during the winter, and then they would come out in the spring about the time the snows of Mount Hermon were melting and the increase of water flow would be so evident. They made sacrifices to their idol gods at this cavern, and many believed their livelihood, their flocks and herds, the blessings of their families, were all given based on these gates of hell. And one more interesting detail is this hundred-foot-high bedrock face below which the water would flow out. And by the way, an earthquake in the 19th century changed the flow of the river to the nearby waterfalls instead of coming directly out from this cavern. This rock face, called Petra, in the Greek, plays into the story. Now, back to our scene where we have Christ and his apostles here in this very place. You can follow along in your scriptures. We're in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist has been beheaded, and some thought he had come back to life. 
some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now remember what you're seeing here. The pagan temple to Pan, a large cavern where all the locals considered this the very gates of hell, this very worldly city with people worshipping false gods, a large bedrock, a hundred-foot cliff face, and a very large volume of water flowing out from underneath this cliff. Now verse 17, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, Peter did not learn from other men or women that this man was the Messiah. It was revealed to Peter by revelation from Heavenly Father. Verse 18, And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He specifically calls him Peter, or Petros, which means a small stone or pebble. Again, picture that bedrock cliff with a large volume of water flowing out of it. Upon this rock, here is the word Petra, P-E-T-R-A, rather than the P-E-T-R-O-S, which he calls Peter. Upon this rock, this Petra, I will build my church. This symbol of bedrock and living water flowing from it is the perfect symbol of revelation. And of course, the Lord would say, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He has the perfect visual aid before him. There is that cavern and the place the locals fear, the very entrance to the underworld, and Christ emphasizes that Satan will not prevail over his church. And to assure that, he then says in verse 19, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now Peter will be given these priesthood keys, just as Joseph Smith in our day, and this will happen soon after this scene. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. Does this all make more sense to you now? The image we use to illustrate this week's podcast is of that bedrock cliff there at Caesarea Philippi. What if the Savior asked us today, Whom do you say that I am? What would be our answer? The Savior has more than a hundred names given to him in the scriptures, each of which captures some part of his mission as Savior and Redeemer. How would you answer that question? Well, the world is rushing away from the idea that He is our Savior and Redeemer. Time magazine explored this question some years ago, trying to determine who Jesus really was. From author Richard Osling, we read, In the U.S., conservative Christians are outraged by a self-appointed Supreme Court of Professors known as the Jesus Seminar which meets twice a year to cast ballots on whether each of the master's New Testament sayings is authentic or not, by ballot. Sample conclusion, Jesus did say, blessed are the poor, but not blessed are the meek, or blessed are the peacemakers, phrases that, the group contends, were added by the gospel authors in an echo of Old Testament writings. The attempt by modern scholars to ferret out the real historical Nazarene from the supposedly embellished accounts in the Bible, a process known as the historical critical method, or higher criticism, has resulted in some rather unorthodox, and I have to say, silly notions. A current sampling, the article goes on, 
Here's some of the things that they came to. Jesus did not claim to be the Messiah. Such assertions represent the church's later belief, which gospel writers inserted into the life of Christ. Here's another one. When Jesus said he was the Son of God, he did not mean to be taken literally. New Testament language of this kind, as in referring to Jesus as the Lamb or Word of God, is all metaphorical. Here's another one. Some portions of the Gospel of Thomas, a text that church authorities have always considered spurious, are earlier and more authentic than the four New Testament Gospels. And here's another one. Jesus never uttered any of the numerous denunciations of the Pharisees found in the New Testament. These sentiments were put in Jesus' mouth by first century church writers who considered the Pharisees their competition. It shows how unwise the so-called smart can be. Here's another one. Jesus may have been crucified by mistake. History suggests that the Romans regularly rounded up dissidents and executed them without trial. Jesus may accidentally have been caught in one of these periodic sweeps, suggests one man. Maybe he was trying out one of his kingdom of God ideas in the company of some boisterous Galileans, a bad idea at the time. In the secular and even religious world since then, the view of Jesus has diminished even further. Some even question if he existed. It's very interesting on that account that most scholars today do agree that he existed, but they have diminished him to just being a, a fine teacher. Isn't it wonderful that we live in an age where the Lord has sent yet another testament of Jesus Christ in the Book of Mormon? The voice of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of covenants and living witnesses of the resurrected Christ in the apostles and prophets. We would say with Peter, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And honestly, Scott, that's the knowledge that matters the most to me in the whole world. It is life itself. Now, back to our story. Just six days after this interaction with the Savior at Caesarea Philippi, the Lord took his senior apostles, Peter, James, and John, to an high mountain apart, to what is called the Mount of Transfiguration. Some feel this was right there at Mount Hermon, the 9,232-foot peak in the vicinity of Caesarea Philippi. Others feel it was Mount Tabor, a single mountain that rises above the Jezreel Valley floor as a prominence of nearly 1,500 feet. Our purpose here is not to convince you of either mountain, but to testify of what happened there. Let's read together in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart. Please note a pattern here. The Lord's revelations are often given on mountains apart in a wilderness place. A temple is a type of a mountain, and there is always an ascension in the temple to finally reach the presence of God. And the next verse in Matthew, And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. It's interesting here that... When witnesses of heavenly manifestations try to describe those experiences, they often have to revert to similes or metaphors and comparisons. They just don't have the words like, His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Joseph Smith said of Jesus Christ, quote, His eyes were as a flame of fire. The hair of his head was white like the pure snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun, and his voice was as the sound of the rushing of great waters. We just don't have the words to describe heavenly things. And behold, in verse 3, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. 
Please note the people who are here, Jesus, Moses, and Elias. Now, Elias is the Greek name for Elijah. So both Moses and Elijah were taken from the earth or transfigured without tasting of death. And it was for this very hour on the Mount of Transfiguration that that happened. Make no mistake, they laid physical hands on Peter, James, and John and gave them the keys of the priesthood that they held the keys of the gathering of Israel, and the keys of turning the hearts of the children to their fathers, and the hearts of the fathers to their children. These priesthood keys are essential for the work of the Lord to move forward on earth. Continuing the story, Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. That's only one of two places in the New Testament that we are given to hear the voice of the Father. One was at the baptism of Jesus, and the other is here at the Mount of Transfiguration. And they're both for the same purpose, to testify of his Son. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face, and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. I loved it that he touched them, reached out for them. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Now question, do we have the full account of the Mount of Transfiguration? A resounding no. What is the most basic and wonderful thing that happened here? Peter, James, and John received priesthood keys by the laying on of hands from Moses and Elijah so that the work could continue after the death and resurrection of Christ. And of course you know in Jewish tradition Elijah would one day return at Passover. And has he returned? A resounding yes. In Kirtland, Ohio, in the newly dedicated temple, Moses, another Elias, and Elijah returned at Passover on Sunday, April 3, 1836, and laid their hands, their physical hands, upon the heads of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and gave them those same priesthood keys. We have a most interesting promise, by the way, in the Doctrine and Covenants, with a little insight into more of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is in Doctrine and Covenants 63, verses 20 and 21. Nevertheless, he that endureth in faith and doeth my will, the same shall overcome and shall receive an inheritance upon the earth when the day of transfiguration shall come. When the earth shall be transfigured, even according to the pattern which was shown unto mine apostles upon the mount, of which account the fullness ye have not yet received. Now that is exciting and mysterious. That's kind of like when Amulek in the Book of Mormon is introducing himself and he refers to one of his well-known ancestors, Aminadi. And it was that same Aminadi who interpreted the writing which was upon the wall of the temple, which was written by the finger of God. He gives us here a story we know nothing about and leaves us wanting more, doesn't he? But it was clearly something that was well-known among the Nephites. Obviously, the fullness of the account of the Mount of Transfiguration is yet to come forth, and we will be excited to read it and study it someday. This whole lesson this week really is about priesthood keys. Keys are different than just the priesthood. 
It's so important that we understand this. President Joseph Fielding Smith explained it this way, quote, There is a difference between receiving an office in the priesthood and in receiving the keys of the priesthood. This we should clearly understand. While all men hold the priesthood who are ordained to any office, yet there are special or directing authorities bestowed upon those who are called to preside. These authorities are called keys. Priesthood keys are the right of presidency. They are the power and authority to govern and direct all of the Lord's affairs on earth. Those who hold them have power to govern and control the manner in which all others may serve in the priesthood. When men are commissioned by the one who holds these keys, then their acts are valid. That which they do is sealed and ratified in the church both on earth and in the heavens. End of quote. I like that term, directing authorities. That's something I can really wrap my brain around to remember what a key is. Accordingly, anyone who is a sealer in the temple has to be given those keys through the prophet or someone designated by the prophet to extend those keys. Anyone who is baptized must do so under the direction of one who holds the keys of the Aaronic priesthood, and that is the bishop or the branch president. There are only four men in a ward organization who hold priesthood keys, and this is sometimes a surprise to people when you wonder who are they. So the four are the bishop or branch president, the elders quorum president, the teachers quorum president, and the deacons quorum president. In all cases, these are quorum presidents, including the bishop, who is president of the priest quorum. And of course, the president and prophet of the church actively exercises all priesthood keys, and we are asked to sustain him in that exercise. You remember one of the temple recommend questions. Do you sustain the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as the prophet, seer, and revelator? and as the only person on the earth who possesses and is authorized to exercise all priesthood keys? This sustaining of the prophet gives us great promises. We have read this before, but it's worth repeating here. From section 21 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verses 5 and 6, For his word, that's the prophet's word, ye shall receive as if from mine own mouth, in all patience and faith. For by doing these things, and here's that term again, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you, yea, and the Lord God will disperse the powers of darkness from before you and cause the heavens to shake for your good and his name's glory. I want those promises in my life and in the lives of our family. We were in Rome for the dedication of the temple there, and as you know, the first presidency in the entire Quorum of the Twelve Apostles gathered there. One of the photographs that was taken during that gathering was of President Russell M. Nelson standing by the statue of Peter, who is depicted as holding the keys in his hand. President Nelson is, right now, the living prophet who holds and exercises all those keys. As we come to the last part of this lesson, we can't miss talking about this tender scene in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. I believe we are all in various places in our lives where faith has to be exercised Sometimes it takes a little faith, sometimes a lot. And sometimes we are presented with challenges and opportunities that may seem to be overwhelming to our faith. Such is the case in this story in Mark. Let's read part of it together. As the disciples are there, a great multitude is around them. And one man says, bringing his son, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. 
And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answered him, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought this boy unto Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. We have to stop at this point. This man is desperate. If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Isn't that so very tender? Elder Jeffrey R. Holland centered one of his conference talks on this very story. Quote, this man's initial conviction by his own admission is limited, but he has an urgent, emphatic desire in behalf of his only child. We are told that is good enough for a beginning. Even if you can no more than desire to believe, Alma declares, let this desire work in you even until ye believe. With no other hope remaining, this father asserts what faith he has and pleads with the Savior of the world, if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I can hardly read those words, Elder Holland continues, without weeping. The plural pronoun us is obviously used intentionally. This man is saying, in effect, our whole family is pleading. Our struggle never ceases. We are exhausted. Our son falls into the water. He falls into the fire. He is continually in danger, and we are continually afraid. We don't know where else to turn. Can you help us? We will be grateful for anything, a partial blessing, a glimmer of hope, some small lifting of the burden carried by this boy's mother every day of her life. If thou canst do anything, spoken by the Father, comes back to him. If thou canst believe, spoken by the Master. Straightway, the scripture says, not slowly, nor skeptically, nor cynically, but straightway, the Father cries out in his unvarnished parental pain, Lord, I believe help thou mine unbelief. In response to new and still partial faith, Jesus heals the boy, almost literally raising him from the dead, as Mark describes the incident. What a view of this marvelous Son of God. What a scene of his compassion on this family, and thus our own families. What a scene to recall again and again as we cry out to the Lord in our own limitations and fears. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And there are pieces and parts of us that still have to develop more faith. How do we strengthen our faith? Scott, what have we done over the years that's helped so much? Well, we have a list of faith scriptures that we have memorized, Maureen and I, or are constantly memorizing that help us and strengthen us. We used to have 30 of them. Now we have 43 core scriptures that we memorize. And I want to testify that as we have made these scriptures a part of our minds and spirits, they really help us in times of need. I love this one from the prophet Jacob in chapter 4, verse 6. And as you listen to this, you can feel the faith surge in your spirit. Wherefore, we search the prophets, and we have many revelations in the spirit of prophecy. 
And having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope, and our faith becometh unshaken, insomuch that we truly can command in the name of Jesus, and the very trees obey us, or the mountains, or the waves of the sea. And as we've been memorizing these scriptures over the years, we look at every single phrase because we have to put it in our minds and hearts and we talk about what that means. It really has been good for us. Oh, and I love this one from John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. We've talked about that a lot. You can do nothing. a little something? Can I do a little something? No, without me, you can do nothing. And of course, I love Moroni 7.33. And Christ hath said, If ye will have faith in me, ye shall have power to do whatsoever thing is expedient in me. Think about that promise. These are the kinds of scriptures on our list of 43. Memorizing them over the last 30 years has really blessed and strengthened our faith. I hesitate to say this, but if you'd like to have our list, drop us an email to Scott. That's Scott with one T, S-C-O-T, at ldsmag.com. And I'll send you out our own faith scriptures list. And of course, you can make your own list of the faith scriptures that move you. Now we encourage you during general conference to listen for all the things that are said that will strengthen your own faith and testimony. Thanks for joining us. We have loved being with you. Please don't forget our assignment for you to share this with three of your family members or friends. Just tell them to go to ldsmag.com forward slash podcast. The following lesson will be a special one on Easter entitled, O Grave, Where Is Thy Victory? Until next time, see you later and have a great couple of weeks.